Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship with the Lord simply by using the uh, promise laid out in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is simply a matter of admitting or acknowledging in privacy to the Lord that which we have done, that it violates his word or his character, the sins that we know of. And the instant that we do so, we are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean, and those sins are completely taken away uh, in terms of their experiential impact on our relationship uh, with God. The filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, resumes, as does our spiritual uh, growth, our forward momentum. Uh, It is only under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that we can truly understand and apply the Word of God in such a way that it produces spiritual uh, benefit and spiritual growth. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you that opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist declared that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in the light of your word, the psalmist also said, that we see light. In other words, that through your word, we are able to then properly understand and interpret the events around us, not only as it affects our own lives, but as we see the sweep of history, we understand your plan and purposes from the creation of man in the Garden of Eden to the ultimate uh, victory over Satan at the end of the tribulation and again at the end of the millennial kingdom. And it is through a study of your word that we as individual believers fit within that panorama of history and that we have an impact because of our own spiritual life and our own spiritual growth. Now, Father, as we study today, as we reflect upon your word, may we be mindful that your word is without error, it is infallible, and it is your word that has real power in our life. And as we study these things, it is because we understand the truth that the truth impacts our thinking, sets us free, as the Lord Jesus Christ says, from error and from faulty thinking, 
that we might uh, orient our lives to your will, your plan, and your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, and we will begin our study this morning in verse 12. But first, we need a little review, a little overview. Chapters 9 and 10 are going to focus on the second series of judgments, which we've been studying, the trumpet judgments. The first series of judgments were the seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment becomes, uh, when the seventh seal judgment is open, it reveals seven trumpet judgments. As we'll see, when the seventh trumpet judgment uh, begins, it reveals seven bowl judgments. Now, if we go back to Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, we have the statement, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I had a question from someone saying, well, what exactly does that mean that it was for half an hour? And this is written from the perspective, of course, of John, who had was seeing these visions and was transported through these visions into heaven. And so as he is observing these things, he, as a, as a still an earthly time-bound creature, is thinking about things with reference to his his own experience of time. So what we see here is that the horror of these judgments that are about to be revealed was of such a nature that everyone in heaven, the angels, the the, uh, 24 elders, the others are in silence as they contemplate uh, how horrible these judgments will be in order to bring an end to sin and evil in human history. Another interesting aspect that is brought out, and I don't think I emphasized when we went through this, is that the circumstances at the beginning of chapter 8 talk about the, this angel. This, uh, there, first, there is a, uh, these seven angels who are standing before God with their trumpets in verse 2, and then there is this other angel who has a golden censer who comes and stands at the altar. Now, we'll get into this a little more as we go through the chapter in our study this morning, but this altar is the altar of incense, which we've been taking some time to study in our study of of Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 on Thursday night. And so there's an important intersection in our, our two studies at this particular point. And according to Jewish ritual in the uh, temple observance, that when the uh, censer was taken in, to, uh, the censer that was a fire pan that carried the coals from the bronze altar out in the courtyard, and then the high priest would take this into the uh, tabernacle proper, and he would place this upon the altar of incense, and the smoke that was billowing up from that uh, censer is a depiction of the prayers of believers. It's also a picture of the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but ultimately it's a picture of prayer and of intercession. And when that would transpire, those who were worshiping in the courtyard there would, have, would be silent. There was this time of silence that came at that time that the uh, coals were replaced uh, every morning and every evening, and so uh, this this picks up on a th- on a theme and on the 
uh, order of liturgy that took place in the Old Testament worship of the of, of Israel, but is also showing that that order of events is a shadow reflection of something that transpires in the heavenly realm, and that is something we're going to get into a little more this morning. By way of review, we've seen that the tribulation period is divided into two, three-and-a-half-year segments. It lasts seven years. The beginning point is when the Antichrist enters into a peace treaty with Israel, and this will uh, guarantee Israel's existence. At least that is what it uh, purports to do, and it is will allow them to have uh, worship at a temple that will be reconstructed on the Temple Mount. Right now that's impossible because that's where the uh, Muslim Dome of the Rock is located. But that's what kicks off the three-and-a-half-year period. It's marked by two series of judgments in the first half, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And then the last three-and-a-half-year period following the abomination of desolation is marked by seven bowl judgments, ultimately culminating in the military campaign known as Armageddon. It's a series of battles that takes place at the end of the tribulation period. The seven trumpet judgments have been the focus of our study the last, uh, last two or three weeks. The first four of the trumpet judgments affected the physical realm of the earth and the creation itself. Trumpet judgment number five, we looked at uh, week before last and last week to some degree, and then uh, the sixth trumpet judgment today involved two different demonic armies. Now, that seems a little odd, as I said last week, to a lot of people with a, a modern secular non-supernatural or anti-supernatural worldview, but this is how the Bible depicts reality, is that there is both a natural realm and what we call a supernatural realm, which is the realm of the activity of angels and demons, and that ultimately history, human history, is related to this revolt that took place at some time before Man was created when this highest of all the angels, whom we know as Lucifer, uh, revolted against God in arrogance. In arrogance, he wanted to be like God, to rule over the angels, to rule over creation, and to demonstrate what, what he could do. And as a result of that, God, as we saw last time, God convened a trial, and he sentenced Satan, whom Lucifer became known as the accuser, he sentenced Satan and a third of the angels that had gone, a third of the angels to an eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. A third of the angels had followed Satan in his rebellion. Now, Satan challenged that verdict in some way. We don't know exactly what he said, but we can uh, deduce it by a study of Scripture that apparently he challenges the justice, the righteousness of God to sentence his creatures to such a horrendous uh, death as eternity in the lake of fire. And there are many people today who get very squeamish about the uh, message that condemnation involves eternal punishment in the lake of fire, thinking, oh, this is just so horrible, this is so terrible. How in the world could a loving God uh, send his creatures to eternity in the lake of fire? And so God is going to demonstrate why this is a just and fitting punishment as he demonstrates in human history that the least of all sins, just a simple sin that Adam committed in the garden of eating a piece of fruit in violation of God's 
uh, God's will, that eating that piece of fruit led to all of the suffering and all of the heartache and all of the misery that we have in human history, all of the wars, all of the famines, all of the diseases, all of these things come as a result of just that simple little innocuous white sin of eating a piece of fruit in disobedience to God. And so what God is showing is that when the creature rebels against God in even the, what may appear to be the most minute, uh, inconsequential manner, it sets up such a string of unintended consequences and such misery upon creation and upon uh, God's creatures that a, a death, a punishment of eternal death in the lake of fire is not uh, an unreasonable or unjustified uh, punishment. So all of this fits in. And as we come to the close of human history, in that period known as the uh, tribulation, this is a time when God is bringing together the final end-time judgments on both on sin in both the human realm and sin in the angelic realm among the demons. That's why we see this intersection of the angelic and the demonic in the tribulation period with human history. And so with these two trumpet judgments, the fifth trumpet judgment and the sixth trumpet judgment, we see the release of these uh, angels these demons, these fallen angels that have been kept in reserve, in bound for this particular event in the tribulation period. And the first part of Revelation chapter 9 talked about this star from heaven that falls to the earth. This star is an angel who is an elect angel who's given the key to the abyss, the bottomless pit, which is where these angels had been imprisoned, these uh, fallen angels, until they were released. And so the fifth trumpet judgment focuses on this release of these horrific uh, creatures who are described in terms of uh, horrendous uh, uh, appearance uh, like a locust with the uh, sting of a scorpion who bring just unprecedented pain and misery upon those whom they afflict so much so that they wish to die, hope to die, but cannot die. And it is clearly a demonic army. For in verse 11 we read, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon, meaning the the destroyer. So he is one of Satan's uh, field marshals, one of Satan's generals. And then we come to verse 12, and verse 12 says that the first woe is past. That is because we learned that at the beginning of the fifth trumpet, that the fifth and sixth trumpet are referred to as two woes. The seventh trumpet is the third woe. They are so serious. They're, the judgment is so extensive and so horrible that they are classified as these three woes. And so the first is the fifth judgment, and then the second is the sixth trumpet. So we read, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Then in verse 13 we read, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So here we have a phrase similar to the one we have studied on um, Thursday night in our study in Hebrews, related to the altar of incense. It is called the golden altar, just as in that passage it's referred to as the golden altar. 
censer, but the Greek word that's used there was a word that we've, as we've studied it, we've seen that it could be any kind of vessel that held these coals for the burning of incense, either a, an altar or a censer. A censer is just a, a fire pan. And we studied the fact that in the uh, description in Hebrews that there's something there that seems to contradict with the Old Testament. Now, some of you haven't been here on Thursday night to go through this, and, and that's an important study in terms of some corrections that are made there, and so you can get the MP3 or watch the video online. But we'll review it a little bit this morning because it's germane to understanding the significance of verse 13. In Hebrews 9.3, the writer of Hebrews says that behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Now, what he is talking about is the tabernacle as it existed in the period from the Exodus and 1446 B.C. up until the building of the first temple by Solomon, which was approximately 970 B.C. During that period, uh, God was still worshipped in that temporary uh, worship center in the Old Testament known as the tabernacle. And that term tabernacle emphasizes a dwelling place. This was where God dwelt among his people. He was said to be enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim referred to the two cherubs on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. And so in Hebrews, there's a reference to that, that behind the second veil, this is the interior veil in the uh, tabernacle itself, there is a, the golden altar of incense, Hebrews 9.4. Now, what we had here is a, what appeared to be a contradiction because what most of us have been taught over the years is that the tabernacle, the inner part of the tabernacle, actually looked like this, where you had an inner chamber called the Holy of Holies, with one piece of furniture in there called the Ark of the Covenant. Then there is a veil indicated by the vertical purple line. And then in the outer room, the outer chamber, which was referred to as the holy place, there were three uh, pieces of furniture. On the south side, there was the golden menorah. Then on the north side, there was the golden table of showbread, and then against the altar, but still within, uh, against the veil, but still within the holy place, there is the golden altar of incense. Now, as I pointed out on Thursday night, there are four ways in which people try to handle that problem of behind the veil. Because as we saw, when you look at behind the second veil, that means that the writer of Hebrews is placing the golden altar of incense within the holy of holies. And we have seen that in the tabernacle and probably, most likely, within the first temple period, the altar of incense was actually inside the Holy of Holies. There, it was a, The purpose for the altar, or one of the purposes for the altar, aside from the day-to-day -day, uh, burning of incense indicating the ongoing intercessory prayer of the, for the nation, uh, that had a second feature that was very important on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would place the, uh, the coals on the altar of incense to burn the incense and he was commanded to do that so that the inner room would fill with smoke and he would be unable to look upon 
the presence of God on the Ark of the Covenant, lest he die. So there was a serious penalty there if he were to do that, uh, that is to look at the Ark of the Covenant. And if there is a wall between the holy place and the uh, Holy of Holies, as you have in this diagram, then it would be very difficult for an altar of incense in the outer chamber to fill the inner chamber behind a wall and a door with uh, incense. So it makes sense from that perspective. Now, what happens historically is that after the Jews returned to the land from what is called the Babylonian captivity, and they built the second temple under Zerubbabel in 516, that that second temple was then completely rebuilt and refurbished by Herod the Great beginning in approximately uh, 25 B.C. Now, if you want to read some things about Herod and, and get a great map, the current December 2008 edition of National Geographic uh, that it may still be available at Barnes & Noble or some of the other uh, bookstores around, has a cover article on the real King Herod, timely article for this time of year. Just recently, last year, they uncovered the burial site of Herod at the Herodium just south of uh, Jerusalem in Bethlehem. And uh, so it refers to a number of things about that. also has some great maps showing the Temple Mount, the Temple area, uh, as it exists today with the Dome of the Rock, as it existed during the Second Temple period, during Herod's lifetime as he rebuilt the temple, and then also a smaller cutaway of what, it appe- what the Temple Mount appeared like in the time of Solomon. And it clearly, ha- it clearly shows that wall, solid wall, that existed between the outer chamber and the inner chamber uh, in the tabernacle. So this is an important facet because it was related to the Ark of the Covenant. It is related to intercessory prayer, and it is related to that that uh, ultimate act of Christ on the cross when he dies for our sins because of its connection with the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. Now, the golden altar is mentioned several times in uh, Revelation. We see it mentioned here in Revelation 8, uh, in the first part of chapter 8, in chapter verses 2, let me see here, what well, was in verses uh, 3, the golden censer comes and uh, another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. Somebody may say, well, there's, that's just a censer. It's not the, it's distinguished from the altar. And somebody did ask this question the other day just for clarification. Some of this is new for everybody. You have to hear it eight or ten times if you're a normal person just to get focused on it. And that is that the vessels associated with the, with the bronze altar and the altar of incense in the tabernacle were made of bronze. The censer, all of that was made of bronze, not of gold. In the second, I mean, in, in the Solomonic temple, the censer was made of gold. In the, uh, in Herod's temple, the censer was made of gold. In the heavenly temple, the censer is made of gold. But in the tabernacle, it was bronze. So it can't be a golden censer there in Hebrews 9.13 because there was no golden censer associated with the bronze altar and the altar of incense in the tabernacle. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is discussing is what's, what was going on within the ritual of Israel uh, in the tabernacle. So that's uh, that's very important. And then the other aspect of that 
is that on a daily basis the high priest would go in to change the incense and to keep to keep it burning. He went in every morning and he went in every night. And if you look through the Old Testament, the only priest that's allowed to change or to to, uh, to take care of the altar of incense is the high priest. It's not till you get to Luke chapter one that we see other priests involved, and that's because in the second temple period. In the second temple period, there was no Ark of the Covenant. There's nothing inside the Holy of Holies. And so in the second temple period, the golden altar of incense had moved out into the holy place. And we have references to that, eyewitness accounts, that that's where it was located. The trouble is that people take the order and arrangement in the second temple, and they want to read that back into the first temple period and the tabernacle uh, period. But the tabernacle was a little bit different. Sunday, I mean, Thursday night, I went through various distinctions between these different, uh, different temples and tabernacles. There's a few minor differences each time in terms of the arrangement of some things. So as we look at the golden altar, it's mentioned in chapter 9, verse 13 of Revelation. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which was before God. What is the significance of this phrase? And so we'll look at it in terms of three three things. First of all, understanding the shadow reality imagery used of the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle or temple. There is this emphasis in Scripture that that which was created in the earthly tabernacle or temple is merely a shadow of a... Uh, ultimate real temple or tabernacle that exists in heaven. Now, I don't believe that there was the, the whole uh, temple up in heaven, that there's a building like a temple up there. But that in the, and the word that's used in, in Revelation is the word naos, which refers to the inner sanctum. Uh, but we do have the figures there, the, uh, the furniture there. There's reference to the altar uh, that is before the throne of God uh, that is in heaven. And we have other references, as we'll see, that relate these two things together. And if I were to take someone from the congregation this morning, take two or three people, we were to turn off all the lights so that it were just, just pretty, pretty dark in here, and we had a spotlight so that we could just shine that spotlight on them and then just ca- to cast a shadow up against the wall behind them, then we could study that shadow and we could learn certain things about the individual. We could learn some things about their, perhaps their size, their height, their proportions, uh, whether they were male or female, possibly how they were dressed and some other things. But only when we begin to see the reality of the individual can we then begin to understand some of the details in the shadow. When you look at the shadow, you may miss out on the significance of certain features. But then when you shift your attention to the reality, then all of a sudden it brings into better focus some of the aspects or features of the shadow itself. And so the 
shadow is what we have in the tabernacle, and it depicts many things about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that furniture that we've seen inside the tabernacle speaks of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The golden menorah depicts Christ as the light of the world. The table of showbread depicts Christ as the bread of life. The altar of incense depicts Christ as our high priest who continuously intercedes for us. Uh, The veil pictured the body of Christ as he suffered and died on the cross. It was at that time that when he died physically, after it was finished, it was the payment for sin. The spiritual death of Christ on the cross was the payment for sin. When he said it is finished, he died physically. At that point, the veil is ripped. The veil in in the temple, the second temple period, which was about four inches thick, uh, specially woven fabric, splits from top to bottom, opening up the passageway into the Holy of Holies, indicating that because of Christ's death on the cross, the direct access now to God is open to all. And all three of the synoptic Gospels reference that splitting of the veil from top to bottom. And then inside the Holy of Holies, you have the Uh, Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, which is a picture of Christ, our substitute Christ, the one who propitiates or satisfies the justice and righteousness of God. And so we have to understand the shadow reality. Once we get into the New Testament, though, and we get into these various doctrines as they're more fully developed, we understand some of the imagery in the Old Testament in ways that they did not uh, comprehend them. So we have to understand the shallow, shadow reality imagery used of the earthly and heavenly tabernacle. Second, the role of the altar of incense. And then third, the, how the altar of incense is used and depicted in the book of Revelation. Just a couple of verses on the first part, understanding the shadow reality imagery used of the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. Acts 7.44 states, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony. It's called that many times, the the tent of testimony, the ark, sometimes it's called the ark of testimony. The word testimony relates to the Ten Commandments, that testimony of God's favor on Israel, the covenant he made with them in the wilderness. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Moses was shown a blueprint pattern related to the order and the organization of these pieces of furniture in heaven. He saw the prototype, the heavenly tabernacle, and it was on the basis of that that he constructed the earthly tabernacle. Then as we get into uh, the New Testament, we see passages such as Hebrews 8, verses 2 and 5. Uh, Hebrews 8, 2 refers to Christ's priesthood, that he is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So that's not a reference to Moses' tabernacle in the wilderness, but to that heavenly dwelling place. If you remember that the word tabernacle means a dwelling place, then when you see these references, this is talking about the dwelling of God, his throne room in heaven. So that is the reference here. And in verse 5, the people referring to earthly priests, the Levitical priests, that they serve a copy 
and shadow of the heavenly things. See, the earthly tabernacle is just a copy. It's a shadow. It's, it's just a, a vague resemblance to this ultimate reality in heaven. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that is, God says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And then in Hebrews 9, verse 11, we read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So it's talking about at the ascension when he is taken to heaven and he enters into that heavenly dwelling place of God that is referred to as the throne room of God in Revelation as well as the heavenly temple and tabernacle. In the book of Revelation, there are multiple references to the throne room of God as the heavenly temple. And I'll just quickly go through these. There's a number of these, and, and the, the fact that there's so many tells us how important this must be. In Revelation 7, uh, 15, we read, For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. This is referring to the... Uh, this is referring to the angels. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will... Uh, excuse me, this is referring to the martyrs that are in heaven, those who are martyred during the tribulation period. They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on this throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Uh, Revelation 11.1 1 and 11.19 state, Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. This is John speaking. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. So he's to measure the heavenly temple. And verse 19 then says, and the temple of God, which was in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. So we see an ark in the heavenly temple as well. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And then in Revelation 13, 6, we read, And he opened his mouth, referring to the uh, first beast. He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And then Revelation 14, 15, Another angel came out of the temple uh, in order to execute another judgment on the earth, one of the final ones related to the battle of Armageddon. Uh, verse uh, Revelation 14, 17, And another angel came out of the temple, uh, which is in heaven, uh, Revelation 15:5 and 6. After these things, John says, I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. In verse 8 of Revelation 15, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then Revelation 16:1, I heard a loud voice again from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Notice, notice it doesn't identify who's speaking. Same as what we have in uh, Revelation 9:13, that I heard a voice from the four horns of the altar. I believe this voice is the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one directing these judgments. So... 
All of this is important because it it shows us a connection between the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Did you notice that there's only two pieces of furniture related to the tabernacle or temple that are mentioned in the heavenly dwelling place? That's the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense because they are so intimately connected with one another. And that was seen every year in the celebration at Yom Kippur. Actually, Yom Kippur was the only one of the feasts, the annual pilgrimage feasts of Israel, that was not a time of, of, of celebration in, in the way of coming together and uh, having more of a festive attitude. It was a time of fasting, a time that was a, a time of reflection upon the sin of the nation and God's deliverance and solution to that sin problem. And so we can't think about the altar of incense apart from its, its significance on the Day of Atonement. And that brings us to an understanding of this word, atonement, that it has a lot of discussion about it. And I want to bring in a few aspects this morning, similar to what I did on Thursday night. Atonement comes from the English phrase at one emphasizing reconciliation, bringing two disparate parties together. So that English word that's coined to translate the Hebrew word kafar uh, actually emphasizes only one aspect of the work of Christ, which is reconciliation. However, when we look at the Day of Atonement, we also see that there is a sacrifice and there is a, a sacrifice of a sin offering and a sin offering for the nation and that that blood is taken into the uh, Holy of Holies by the high priest and is applied uh, one uh, drop or smear on the mercy seat, seven are sprinkled or splattered onto the floor in front of the mercy seat, and the indication of this blood sacrifice emphasizes a payment. Now, the word, that, the theological word that comes out of the Scripture that emphasizes the payment of a price is that word redemption. Now, redemption is distinguished from reconciliation in the New Testament, but you will find redemption listed in many dictionaries as one meaning of atonement. And as I was pointing out on Thursday night, what we see in this word atonement is that it is a general word that really incorporates all the different facets of Christ's work on the cross. So the blood sacrifice relates to the payment of a price that is redemption. Thirdly, we see that the mercy seat itself, that is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, it is made of one piece, and on it are two cherubs associated with the righteousness and the justice of God, and sits over the open box, closing the box, sitting over the box of the Ark of the Covenant, in which were originally the tablets of the law, Aaron's rod that had budded it, and then the uh, manna from heaven, all of which related to events in Israel's history where they had sinned and rejected the provision of God, his provision of the law, his provision of a leader, a high priest in Aaron, and the provision of sustenance in the manna. And so when that blood is applied, it is a 
picture of the fact that God's righteousness and justice are satisfied by that payment price. And every year as you went from September of one year to September of the next year, from one Yom Kippur to the next Yom Kippur, Israel would amass a number of sins, trespasses against God, against the law. And so, as it were, this is a pile of debt that has accumulated And by satisfying God's righteousness, he then will cancel the debt. He will then cancel the debt, and the cancellation of that debt is referred to by two different words that we use to to describe this expiation and forgiveness. And forgiveness in the scripture is the idea of completely wiping out a debt, completely removing the debt. It is not an idea that many people have of simply saying, well, you're not going to have to suffer any consequences. That's not the idea in forgiveness in Scripture. It's, the, it's not even the idea of removing mental attitude sins and, and as a personal or subjective thing. That may be part of it in terms of application, but that's not the core meaning. The core meaning is forgiveness means to completely erase, to cancel out a debt. It is as if your mortgage holder were to come to you and say, okay, here's your mortgage. You still owe me $150,000. I'm tearing it up. There is no more debt, and we can't go back there again because the documents are torn up. We'll burn them, and there is no uh, continuation. There is no remembrance even that this debt ever existed. That's the biblical picture of of forgiveness that you see on the Day of Atonement when God took excuse me, when the high priest would take the the two goats, one would be sacrificed as a sin offering for Israel, the other became the scapegoat. The high priest would put his hand on the scapegoat, identifying, you know, reciting the sins of Israel, identifying that goat with those sins. Then one who was a trusted man, a trusted man, not someone who was lazy, who would just go around the corner and let the goat go, but one who was trusted, who would take it into the wilderness, far enough away to where it would not come back, could not find its way back. He would take that goat out there and let it go, indicating that our sins are removed from us, the Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. God never brings them up again. So this word atonement that is associated with the altar is a, an extremely significant word because it relates to how God deals with sin. Now, the basic problem that man has is that sin has created this barrier between man and God. It was Adam's original sin that resulted in the condemnation of the human race. And because of sin, God, who is perfectly righteous and just, cannot have a relationship with fallen creatures who are sinners. Now, this problem of sin really encapsulates several uh, different aspects of, uh, of the problem that have to be dealt with. The first is the basic problem of sin itself and the impact that sin has on creation. Sin is an act of rebellion against God. The second aspect relates to the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death, which came to Adam instantly when he disobeyed God and is then passed on uh, to every member of the human race. We're all born spiritually dead but physically alive. And then there's the problem of the character of God. Because he is a righteous and just God, his righteousness has to be satisfied so that his justice can bless man. Then man is born without righteousness. 
He is minus R. He lacks righteousness. Even his best deeds cannot add up to God's perfect righteousness. And then he is spiritually dead. He is born spiritually dead. He is in a status of spiritual death. And he is in Adam, the scripture says, identified with Adam. So God has to have a design a, a salvation that takes care of all of these different problems. Uh, it's not just a simple thing. It's simple to just trust in Jesus. Even a three-year-old can do it. But to understand all that went into it uh, would, would take years and years and years of study, and we still wouldn't cover it all. It is the cross that solves the problem. Sin is solved by unlimited atonement. There's that word, atonement, and what that means. It's a, it's a broad word, but the key thing here is it's unlimited, and that means that Christ pays for all sin. In fact, the writer of Colossians, the Apostle Paul states in Colossians 2, 12 to 14, that the certificate of our debt was nailed to the cross. It's a past tense verb. That means at the instant Christ pays the penalty, he pays it in full. The debt is wiped out. The penalty for sin is paid for through redemption. We have been redeemed through his precious blood. The blood is of the lamb without spot or blemish. That's another aspect that's covered in that word atonement. And then the third is that we see the character of God resolved by propitiation, which is also expiation and forgiveness. You can add forgiveness there. There wasn't room on the slide to type that word in. But that covers those first three. And what's interesting is it's those first three aspects of the problem that are said in the Scriptures to have been resolved universally. Now, because they are resolved universally does not mean that everybody is saved. It just means that in, with reference to God, with reference to the objective legal penalty for sin, with reference to God's character, that has been resolved for everyone. The problem is that everyone is born with the next three problems. They aren't righteous enough to have a relationship with God. They are still sinners. They are spiritually dead, and they are in Adam. And those are resolved when a person trusts in Christ as Savior. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, the righteousness of Christ is imputed or reckoned to your account. And God declares you to be justified. That's the important teaching of justification by faith alone. Spiritual death is resolved by regeneration. You are born again. You are given new life in Christ. You are given a new human spirit at that instant, and you are a new creature in Christ and no longer viewed as in Adam. And so uh, these doctrines all indicate and show how God resolves the sin problem. But notice the top three, that subjective application, is all based on the bottom three, and that comes out of a study of this whole concept of, of atonement. Now, we also see this altar mentioned in other passages. For example, in Revelation 6-9, we saw in the first series of judgments, the seal judgments, in the fifth seal judgment, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and, of the te- and because of the testimony which they had maintained. This is a reference to believers during the tribulation 
who are killed, executed, tortured for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so when they go to heaven with their intermediate body, they are under the altar of incense. And this is depicted again in uh, the next ch- in, in that chapter as their prayers going up to God, and they are praying that God would bring an end to the this evil on planet earth and execute his judgment against uh, the antichrist and god says wait it's not time in chapter 8 verse 3 we see again this angel coming and holding this golden censer by the golden altar and incense is given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne this is the prayer of the martyred saints for vindication and judgment during the tribulation period. And when the angel takes the censer, fills it with fire of the altar, and throws it to the earth, that is showing the that God is now beginning that final process of ending, uh, or bringing about that judgment and answering that prayer. We see this again in 9.13, our passage. The sixth angel sounds, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And so this connects to those previous passages, indicating this is part of the answer to those prayers. In Revelation 16, verse 7, we read, And I heard the altar, that's a figure of speech referring to the one at the altar, saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And so when we hear the voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, this is the voice, I believe, of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb, who is the one overseeing these judgments, bringing about the final answer to this particular prayer. Then in verse 14, we see the beginning of the answer to this prayer. One says to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. These four angels are four demons. They're not elect angels. They're demons. They have been bound, held there uh, since uh, some time in the past. We don't know when. For this particular moment, they're at the great river Euphrates. Now, here's a map, and this is a map really that depicts... uh, Abraham's journeys in the ancient world, but it's the best map I had to show the Euphrates. This area here in the, this area all around here is modern Iraq. And the Euphrates River joins the Tigris here. The Tigris is the one to the uh, east, and the Euphrates is the one that comes up along here, just along the edge of this uh, brown line, and then it goes right by Babylon. Key figure. If the river Euphrates is to be taken literally, then later when we come to references to Babylon, we have to understand that to be literal. Notice it is from the Euphrates, which is at the border, was the ancient border between Rome and Parthia. It was the eastern extremity of the land God promised to Abraham. And so the Euphrates goes all the way up, traveling to the northwest, goes up through and into Syria and into modern Turkey, finding its headwaters up into the central uh, part of what is now modern Turkey. And so it is from that location that we have these four demons, and I believe these are generals, 
uh, field marshals within this demonic army that are going to be released at this particular time. In verse 15, we read, And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month. How much more precise can you be? There is a precise hour on a particular day in a particular month of a particular year that is when they will be released, and God knows when that time will be, and that is within the period of the tribulation. And they will be released, and they will kill a third of mankind. Now, this is remarkable in terms of the slaughter and the death that occurs during the tribulation period. Remember that it was during the first set of judgments, the seal judgments, that a quarter of those on the earth, a quarter of those on the earth, perished. And that's not to count those who died in the wars and the famines and the other events that occurred during the uh, seal judgment. So the seal judgments led to a quarter plus of the earth's population uh, dying. And then during the first part of the trumpet judgments, you had various other events that occurred in each of those judgments that also resulted in many uh, human beings dying during that time. And then coming to the sixth judgment where a third of those left are killed. This means that somewhere beyond half of the human race is killed during the first half of the tribulation period. And so we see the, that they are released to kill a third of mankind. We're not told how that will take place. Their number is identified as a translation as 200 million in 916. But actually, this doesn't mean 200 million. That is not an accurate translation. It is the Greek word, desmeriadis myriadon. Myriad of myriads is how it's translated in other pat, and when it describes the number of angels. It is two times myriad of myriads. It's an uncountable number. It is an extremely high number, but it is not a specific number. And it is just a, an extremely large, millions upon millions of demons are released at that particular time. And then John says in verse 17, This is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone. Now, some translate hyacinth as a deep reddish black color like fire. Others take it to be more of a blue-black I think that here, in keeping with the color of fire and brimstone, it is that reddish-black color. And fire and brimstone are typically associated in Scripture with the judgment of God. The ferocity is expressed by the imagery of the horses having heads like lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. And then in verse 18, we read the fulfillment of their mission. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Now notice the tails of the, in the previous judgment of the locusts, their tails were like scorpions. But in this army, their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So we can't quite imagine what that looks like, but they are going to uh, be the source of tremendous death at this particular time towards the middle of the tribulation period, I believe. In Revelation 9.20, then we get the spiritual interpretation and impact. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, 
did not repent of the works of their hands. Now, that means they don't change their mind. They're still dead set in rebellion against God. They will not submit to his authority. They resist him, and they're not going to change from worshiping demons. Now, that doesn't mean they're actually bowing down to a physical representation of a demon. As I pointed out last time, demon influence is thinking like Satan thought, operating on arrogance. And so uh, they don't worship demons. Uh, I mean, they will continue the worship of demons and demonic thought and the idols of gold and silver and brass that you find in various false religions and of stone and wood, which can neither see nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. There is no recognition that they are in violation of God's authority. Now, Joel chapter 2, verse 12, tells us that God continues to reach out in grace. He says in a passage that foreshadows the end-time day of the Lord, the end-time judgments of the tribulation, he says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. He's speaking of the Jews, that ultimately it's not the physical acts, it is the change of mind, rending your heart, meaning the change of your thinking. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. The Lord is able to forgive because Christ paid the penalty for sin. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. There's no sin too great for the grace of God. It doesn't matter what failures you've had. It doesn't matter how much you've disappointed yourself or anybody else. It is the grace of God that covers pays for all sin so that all that is necessary is for us to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him. This is why the Apostle Paul could make the gospel so simple in Acts 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Throughout the tribulation, despite their hostility and arrogance and commitment to all manner of false religions, these enemies of God, are continuously offered a chance to turn, a chance to respond to the gospel. And yet all that offer does is to cause them to further entrench themselves in their own hostility and arrogance to God. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? But the grace of God has solved the problem. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through these things as relates to the future, but it also helps us to pull together other aspects of what you have revealed to us in your word that teach us that all of Scripture fits together as a seamless whole and that we can truly trust your word for that which begins to be revealed in the early parts of the Old Testament fits within the Gospels and is pulled together as we come to the end of days in Revelation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and at that instant, you have eternal life. At that instant, God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, declares you justified, regenerates you, gives you new life in Christ, and you are completely and totally uh, forgiven of all sins, and that is no longer an issue. The issue, only issue for you is to believe that Christ died for your sins. 
Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today. We pray this in his name. Amen.